0: Turn this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 26, and we're going to read the first 20 verses. So we'll read a good chunk of the chapter uh, to get the context. And we have the the work as we as we read this chapter, <clears throat> uh, we have the work of examining a text that places it places before us really what this whole service has been about, which is faith leading to sanctification. And it's not not an easy thing for us to grasp because typically what we think of when we think of faith alone is we think about justification. And so one of the things that we're going to have to do is we're going to have to make clear in our own minds the difference between justification and sanctification and of course these are big theological words and so we have to we have to break them down and define them make sure that we understand well I guess that's my we we don't have to I have to for you uh, not because you guys don't know but because we all need good reminders of it. And so this is your annual reminder on the difference between justification and sanctification. So in our passage, Paul is given a chance. It's really, it's another chance uh, in the context to defend himself. And whenever Paul is given the chance to defend himself, he always takes the opportunity to defend himself but he goes much further than defending himself he also makes a point of proclaiming the gospel so that's something that is what would i say it doesn't it doesn't necessarily come naturally that kind of work right that every time you have Somebody attacking you, uh, instead of worrying about what they think about you, you turn everything about your defense into talking about Jesus. It almost sounds like somebody who is uh, super spiritual and you know so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good, right? Well, why, why don't you actually just talk about what we're talking about, Paul? But Paul's point is that this is what we're talking about. This is the reason why he was being attacked. This is at the heart of his life and why he's doing what he's doing. And so it's always on the forefront of his mind. It's always what he turns to. It's always what he proclaims whenever he's given the chance. And this passage is also uh, kind of, Meta. Because Paul's telling the story of how he first started proclaiming the gospel. But of course, in the process, what is he doing? He's proclaiming the gospel. So it's like one of those loops. Even when you, even when you ask him to, to talk about why he proclaims the gospel, he doesn't really do that, he just proclaims the gospel. And what we're going to see is that Paul's work, his work of proclaiming the gospel, his work of traveling, all of the work that he has given himself to, it's rooted in the direct command of Jesus. Jesus has given him explicit commands. And so that's really what Paul appeals to as his defense. The same way that you remember Peter and John when they're told to stop proclaiming the good news about Jesus. They just say, "Uh, sorry, Jesus told us to, so that's that. We're going to keep doing it. That's that's basically what Paul says here. He's like, well, you know, God told me to, so that's why I'm doing it. Well, how many things are there in our lives that we can say well, God told me to, and so I'm doing it. And not in the sense of the uh, the person who comes to you and says, well, God just told me that you like the color blue, and so I thought I'd buy you this nice blue cup. No, I'm not talking about stupid, inconsequential stuff. I'm talking about actual commands that fill your life that you have to constantly be doing them. Well, the answer, of course, is, on the one hand, not at all. We're not apostles, and so we we don't have this huge burden that Paul has, and yet, if you if you spend just a couple minutes thinking about it and go back to the question is there's you know are there specific things that God has commanded you to do of course the answer is all the time your whole life every moment of your life is filled with the question of whether you're going to be obedient to God's commands right then And really the, the big question at that moment isn't you know, st- you know standing in the store looking at the blue cup or the red cup and trying to decide which one you like better and trying to decide whether you're going to buy one of them. okay The question isn't what has God told you to do right then. You know what God has told you to do and it's not to buy either cup necessarily or not to buy one or which one was better. What God has told you to do is live by faith. And this is where sanctification comes in unexpectedly in our text. Because Paul lays sanctification, and again, I'll give you definitions in a little bit, okay? But Paul lays sanctification at the foot of faith. So as you're attempting to live a holy life, a sanctified life, a life where you're doing what God wants you to do, day in, day out, minute by minute, hour by hour, what that reveals to us, as we'll see in this passage, is that we have to be living by faith. Well, let's stand and read Acts 26, verses 1 to 20. Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee, according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God, raise, if God does raise the dead? So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them, even to foreign cities. While so engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O King, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister. And a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring, both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance." This is the word of the Lord. You. you may be seated. So Paul doesn't only claim to be under Jesus' authority. He also claims to be under Jesus' protection. And then he explains what God is accomplishing through him. Salvation of the Gentiles. But not just salvation. He doesn't use that word. Instead, he mentions various good consequences for the Gentiles. Which together, we can describe altogether as salvation. But the one that I want to focus on, as I said, is sanctification. Paul's whole trajectory here. His focus throughout is on obedience and sanctification. So what is sanctification? What does it mean when he says among an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in Jesus? <clears throat> well, sanctification is the process of us becoming more and more holy. And this process is undertaken by faith, or not at all. The contrast between sanctification and justification is that justification takes place at a point in time, once. And it's a a declaration from God that your sins are forgiven, that you are washed, that you have been saved. You have been cleansed from the sins that you have committed and from all of the sins that you will commit. And so typically when we talk about being saved by faith we think today in America especially of a one-time event whether that was something that happened to you in college or whether that you know was something that happened to you at a revival service whether that was something that happened to you while you were watching Billy Graham on TV or somebody else, or whether that was something that happened in VBS when, when you were invited to come forward and pray a prayer. So we think of, we think of being saved in that sense almost always of that one time thing. Well, that one time thing is perfectly fine to refer to as salvation. Our justification, the moment when we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, where we are made alive instead of dead. That's that's what happens at that that point in time, right? But the, the downside to what we have today is that we always want that one-time thing to be the extent of salvation. And what we want to do is we want to bundle everything else that has to do with salvation into that one-time thing. And so if I ask you, are you a Christian, you say, yes, because I invited Jesus into my heart that one time. And I say, okay, so what does it mean to be a Christian? And then you say, well, it means that I invited Jesus into my heart that one time. Or maybe you say it means I repented of my sins that one time, or, or something along those lines, but you, you always refer back. And so what happens is, what we really are desperate for is that at that one point in time, not only are we transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, but also that from then on, it's going to be easy. I mean, really, I could put a lot of theological words into that, but that's what we're, that's what we're looking for. What we really want is that at that point, then we won't have to be fighting anymore. We won't have to be fighting our own sin. We won't have to be fighting our own temptations. There won't be any longer, any bit of the old man within us still. There won't be any bit of that, that hesitancy. There won't be any more faithlessness. There won't be any more fears. We'll just, we'll just go from one high point to the next high point in our life. And especially in our faith. In other words, what we really want is we want to skip over all of the work of sanctification that God does in us by faith, right? And we want to skip all the way to glorification. And glorification is what happens when we are united with Christ, after the resurrection. We're given new bodies and all of our tears are wiped away and we look forward to that day. And what we really want to do is just have that day right now. And so it's very interesting that while Paul is speaking to King Agrippa, a a guy who he says knows a lot about the Jewish faith, right? And while he's giving a defense... For what he's been doing. And while he's talking about what Jesus has commanded him to do and why he's going ahead and doing it, and he's telling this amazing story, in the end, what he ends up focusing on is the obedience that people need to begin doing. The sanctification that they are to receive by faith. The point is, Paul sees it as absolutely necessary, not just for the Gentiles to hear that Jesus is Lord and to acknowledge that he did miracles and that I guess, well, yeah, I mean, I guess he probably is God, right? There's something much more important than that. A simple acknowledgement of the fact that, well, yeah, I know Jesus is God, isn't worth anything. It's the same as the It's the same as the statement that we that we're given, you believe that God is one. Good. But even the demons believe that and shudder. And so I can give you all kinds of examples of people who I know who acknowledge that Jesus is God. And yet, they have no faith in Him to be able to sanctify them. They may even even claim that they have hope for him to justify them, but they have no faith for him to sanctify them. And depending on the person, you'll hear this kind of thing from people when they say, they'll put it into little pithy phrases. Okay? You can't teach an old dog new tricks. Right? Well, what is that statement when you're talking about the necessity of living a holy life? You can't teach an old dog new tricks. That's No, I don't think so. I'm not going to obey. Right? But it's not just it's not just a denial, it's not just a rejection of obedience. What it demonstrates is a lack of faith. You can't. You can't teach me to do new things. It's hopeless for me. And so, ultimately, faith for justification that God can pluck you out of a life of despair and misery and death and sin, that he can pluck you out of hell and transfer you into the kingdom of life, that faith cannot be separated from the faith that believes he is able to sanctify you, that he is able to help you Begin sometimes slowly, sometimes more quickly, sometimes with two steps back and one step forward, but begin living an obedient life to Him. And so when you, when, when you're tempted to say that there is no hope for you to fight that sin. Whatever that sin is in your life. Okay? And it's different for each of us here, probably. That is an attack on your faith. Do you understand? That's an attack on your faith. That is that is Satan accusing... The brethren, the believers, right? That is Satan saying, actually there's no hope for you to be justified because there's no hope for you to be sanctified. There's no hope for you to actually begin living in obedience. There's no hope for you to actually begin loving doing what God has commanded. And the reason you can tell is because, really, you don't enjoy obeying your parents, and if you, if you were actually a Christian, you would enjoy loving it, your brothers and your sisters, and you would, you would want to obey your parents, and you would, you would not have the need for sanctification to happen in your life. And so Satan takes what American Christianity has become, and, and what you've heard and heard and heard, this sort of individualistic, one-time kind of thing, and he, He makes a brilliant lie out of it. He takes it and he says to you one of two things. And both of them involve giving up sanctification. Okay? That's the the key here. The one thing that he says is you don't have to worry about sanctification, you don't have to worry about becoming more obedient. Because remember, you were saved that one time. And the other thing that he says is, Well, there's really no hope for you to be justified because look, there's no You're not perfectly holy yet. And so he he makes use of the fact that we've that we've become confused about justification and sanctification, about the already and the not yet. And he uses those to twist us up in knots one way or another. And his goal, in any case, is to keep us from trying to obey. His goal is to prevent our sanctification. His goal is to prevent us from growing in obedience. So, how necessary is sanctification? Well, the inheritance, and, and ultimately the inheritance that we are waiting for is the new Jerusalem, right? Ultimately, the inheritance that we're waiting for is eternal life in heaven with Christ. That's the fulfillment of the receiving of the inheritance, right? But the inheritance is only for those who have been sanctified. Hebrews 12.14 says, "...Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which..." no one will see the Lord. And it's such a, it's just such a downer for us. It's not the way that we like hearing about American Christianity. And so, the the question that immediately pops to mind is, okay I guess I don't I can't really argue with you biblically I can't find some like you know way to deny that this is true but okay then so could you help me out here could you give me some encouragement how exactly am I supposed to be sanctified because I've lived my life in a way that lacks the sanctification that I really need See, should be there. And of course, that, that describes all of us, right? The sanctification that should be there is just lacking and lacking and lacking and lacking. Every time that we think we've truly repented and that we're never going to struggle with that sin anymore is the very moment that we begin struggling with that sin again. So sanctified, how? Well, what Paul records for us in the words of Jesus is that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me so it's by faith it's by faith in Christ that we are sanctified and that we receive that inheritance so what about people who obey but don't have faith And by obey, of course, you know I, I can. I, what I basically mean is the the people that everybody says, well, they are a good person. They are a fine, upstanding citizen. Uh, a friend of mine. In Indy, I always talked about this, uh, this one Mormon guy as being the best guy he knew, right? And so, this would be a great example of somebody who, you know, there's no faith, and yet he obeys. He's constantly, constantly. Trying to do the right thing. He's always concerned about other people. He's always serving others. He's always generous. He's always living in such a way as that, that my friend looks at him and is like, that guy was one good dude. Right? That's one good guy. And that's really all I mean by people who obey, but don't have faith. Well, there's a couple of answers to that question. Romans 14.23 says, whatever is not from faith is sin. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so ultimately, what does that mean? It means that those people who obey but don't have faith are not actually what? Obeying. Right? Now, we've got to get that concept straight in our minds. Okay? That's so fundamental. And it's easy, it's easy to prove it. I mean, I just read those verses. Whatever is not from faith is sin. So, that means that all of the stuff that he's doing that looks good is actually sin. Right? And it's like, okay, but I mean, but it is actually him, like, doing good, right? I mean, it's better than him always being angry and smacking people whenever he sees them. Right? So, this is the conundrum that pops up in our minds is like but they do actually like actual you know do good So take a take a big step back and ask yourself how is it that we summarize the law the Old Testament can all be summarized with two commands right Love God And love your neighbor? And in those is contained the whole of the law, right? So here's somebody who does not have faith. Are they obeying that command? Love God. No, they're not. And so no matter how much it looks like they're obeying the love your neighbor... Right? They're not obedient. And no matter how much the stuff that they do is actually good. Because remember, uh, we're not just relativists. Whatever is not of faith is sin, and yet there is still good and bad for people to do who don't have faith. Right? It's better for parents to care for their children and to leave an inheritance rather than to be abusive and spend all of their money and never pass anything on to their children. Non-Christians can do both of those things. One is objectively better than the other, right? And yet, what we want to do, we want to simplify this down and just be like, well, either they're good, in in which case, you know, I mean, you can't condemn them. And they therefore must be... You know, there must be hope for them. They must be Christians, really. I mean, how could somebody who's not a Christian be that doing that many things right? That many good things? Or we want to say, well, you know, so-and-so is obviously... not, there's no hope for them because look at the bad things that they do. Well, really, we're back to the question of sanctification. Is it possible for you to please, to live your life in a way that pleases God? Well, let's, Let's switch the question up a little bit and make it easier. Is it possible for you to, you kids, you can answer this one. Is it possible for you to live your life in such a way as to please your parents? You, I might accept the answer yes if the question was changed to your grandparents. Is it possible for you to live in such a way as to please your grandparents? You know, by the time you get one generation further, is it possible for you to live your way, your life in such a way as to please your great grandparents? Highly unlikely. I think it's this sine wave, you know, like great grandma expects you to live a totally different way, right? Grandma is very permissive. Mom is like. Pulling her hair out. Well, why do I switch it to parents? Well, because if, you know, if it's not possible for you to live in such a way as to please your parents, is it really possible for you to live in such a way as to please God? Remember, God is perfect. God is holy. And your mom only expects you to, you know, clean your room and not eat like a slob. But God demands that you live a perfect life all the time, every moment. That's what He requires of you. And so, His demands are infinitely higher than the most demanding Father, who you can never please because you can never do it right. Or the most frustrated mother who has a personality uh, conflict with you. Those things are minor. Those things are nothing compared to the, the expectation of perfection. Not just the expectation, but the demand. Be ye perfect as I am perfect, is what God says. So is it possible for you to live in such a way as to please God? And the answer is yes. It is possible for you to live in such a way as to please God. And Satan will tell you that it is not possible for you to live in such a way as to please God. But he is a liar. His whole goal is to make you give up on sanctification. Because he knows that if you give up on sanctification, you're done. You don't have faith unless you're pursuing sanctification by faith. It takes faith to obey. There are a thousand reasons to disobey. You know, you look at the cookie on the counter, and it's filled. It's just, it's packed to the gills with sugar molecules, right? And every individual sugar molecule Is another reason to disobey when you've been told not to eat that cookie. There's a million reasons to disobey just in that one cookie. And then, and then you put the frosting on it and the sprinkles. And every sprinkle is another reason to disobey, right? Because it's what you want. It's, it's this, it's perfectly synchronized with the, with the inner man that has not yet been perfected, that has has yet to be glorified, that's in the process of being sanctified, that's in the process of becoming more holy, right? And so every moment of every day is filled with these temptations where there are a thousand reasons for us to disobey. I know mom says I'm supposed to get up and make my bed, but I would prefer to get up and do anything else, right? I mean, it might be, I would prefer to get up and go do another chore that I'm supposed to do in the afternoon. There's no sense to our desires For disobedience, right? But the reasons are just always all around us. And this is why sin is described as that which so easily entangles. Because getting out of bed, there's vines wrapped around the floor. And it's it just takes you trying to take one step. And you're all wrapped up in it. Starting a new year, this is is the temptation that we face. You come into the new year and you have these grand aspirations of what you're going to live your life like this year. right? And so you're going to be done with laziness at work. And you're going to be done with laziness in... uh, going to bed, and getting up at the wrong times. And you're going to be done with laziness in your schoolwork. And you're going to be done with laziness in exercise. And you're going to be done with laziness in your dieting. And you're going to be done with laziness. And, of course, with the New Year, you're talking about changes that you've been intending to make for maybe months, maybe years, that you've tried over and over again to make, some of them. And so generally, they can all fall under the category of laziness one way or another. But you could also say that they generally fall under the under the category of any number of other things, right? <clears throat> I'm going to stop living for myself in this area. I'm going to stop living for myself in that area. I'm going to stop living for myself when, you, you know... I'm going to start honoring my parents in my conversations with my friends at school. I'm going to start honoring my parents in my, okay, that might not be a very common New Year's resolution. Granted. But we come into the New Year and you have, you have something where it's like, you know, okay, this is a good opportunity to start something new. And now we're far enough into it, which is, What One week? We're far enough into it for me to tell you, okay, so now that you failed at living the life that you wanted to live going into the new year. Because how many of you are like me? It was Monday. Right? I'm not trying to make light of New Year's resolutions or of sin, my point is, okay, so now we're far enough in that we've seen that it's not just a matter of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's not just a matter of repeating, once again, a new mantra to ourselves. It's not just a matter of, uh, you know, the... the crazy absurd self help stuff that they print it's as and 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 psychologists will tell you that it works you know it's not just a matter of adopting a power pose right it's not just a matter i mean that's as that's as ridiculous as uh as what about Bob? He's walking down. I feel good. I feel great. I feel wonderful. I feel good. I feel great. I feel wonderful. And that's supposed to accomplish something for you. Did that work when you were having pain? Either of you guys? I feel good. I feel great. I'm going to die. Does, 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 I'm, I'm going I'm to obey. I'm going to... I'm going to be diligent, I'm going to obey. I'm going to Let's let's come up with a nice holiness mantra, right? <clears throat> and how much is that going to help? It requires faith, right? It requires faith for your life to be changed, to be growing growing more in accordance with the command of God. And so despite all of the thousands of reasons to disobey, really the only reason to obey is because you believe God's word by faith. And that that encompasses a a whole new world of reasons to obey, right? Because what does his word say? It gives you promise after promise after promise of what will come to those who obey. And so we speak of the, the benefits of obedience, right? And... The, uh, the popular way to talk about the benefits of obedience is to discuss human flourishing. Right? You know, it's something is good for human flourishing or something does not tend towards human flourishing. Do you remember when the, uh, in the Old Testament when they decided to have the young men fight? So they gave them all swords and They all grabbed each. How many pairs was it? It It's like thirty pairs or some thirteen pairs. I can't remember. And every last one of them, they both grabbed each other and then thrust the sword through each other's belly, and they all died. Is that good for human flourishing? No, not good for human flourishing, right? And so there's these obvious, like I say, there's there is only one reason to obey God and it is because you believe his word by faith right and you say oh no there's all kinds of other reasons to obey god there's all kinds of other reasons like it's not good for human flourishing to do heroin especially if it's laced with what's what's that other drug that they're mixing in with it right now what fentanyl yeah Okay, not good for human flourishing, right? Better to not do it. You don't die that way. But what does that require you to see? It requires you to look at the world that God has created and to believe what he has written onto the universe. You have to, you, you, in order to make that, that most obvious of statements that this thing is better than that thing, right? That requires you to, that requires you to see already that life is better than death. You see how everything with regard to obedience is dependent on that. Believing that what God says is true, whether it's what he's written in his word, or whether it's what he's written onto creation. And so the moment you begin to believe, then you seek to obey by faith. When life is going terribly for people and they're tempted to commit suicide, okay, it requires faith to move beyond that. When Satan is telling you that there's no hope for you ever. To make progress against that sin, it requires that you believe that there is a God and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. You think about the songs that we sang. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. How can you how can you want having having heard that, having believed that, how can you want to do anything else besides seek sanctification? You want to obey. And then then you walk out of here and I know you fall into sin again. Don't be shocked at that. And don't give up fighting that. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. It's not just ta- that song is not just talking about the like this justification that happened, right? The weight of the ongoing, continual sin that we fall into—it's Christ's work alone that can ease the weight of that sin, and that's why it speaks of each thought of unbelief and fear each lingering shade of gloom because these are the temptations that satan throws at us do you desire to be sanctified it's not a question of do you desire to have a better life this year in 2017 really If that will help you turn to looking to actual sanctification, then great. But there is a warning. And the warning comes from Proverbs 13, 19. It says, it is an abomination to fools to turn away from evil. Now, I'm going to read that three more times. It is an abomination to fools. In other words, fools hate this. Right, Turning away from evil. It is an abomination to fools to turn away from evil. When faced with the choice of turning away from evil or running headlong into evil, the fool says, not just, I think I'll run headlong into evil. The fool says, I hate leaving behind evil. I hate turning away from evil. I hate repentance. It's an abomination to me. There is nothing more foolish than that. It is an abomination to fools to turn away from evil. So, don't be a fool. Love turning away from evil the thousandth time and the thousandth and oneth time and the thousand and two time and three and four. And next week when you're on two thousand and fifteen, love turning away from evil. Don't let Satan make you into his fool. If you desire to be sanctified, you have to proceed by faith, not by your own strength. And that means the difference between repentance and self-help. Because repentance says, I believe you, God. I'm seeking you again. I know you are able to save me even from this. Even though once again I've fallen into sin. And self-help says, this time I can do it. This time I can do it. This time I can do it. But you can't. Jesus said, those who receive the inheritance are those who have been sanctified by faith in him.